From Yahoo and Finance, I'm Alexis Christopherus. Welcome to another Time edition of Electionomics. Today, we are going to talk about the convergence of the coronavirus pandemic and politics. Is President Trump's handling of this crisis causing cracks in the Republican Party? And we are delighted to have with us Elaine K. Mark. She's a political scholar and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's also the author of Primary Politics. And by the way, she's worked for a few Democratic campaigns. Uh, in her day. Elaine, good to have you here. Um, both Rick and I read your most recent uh, article at Brookings, and in it you talk about how this pandemic may have brought about what you call the first faint cracks in the Republican <laughs> wall of support for Trump. It, lay that out for us. How so? Okay, well, and thank you, by the way, for having me on this morning. Um, as you probably know, the Republican Party, particularly in the Congress, has been incredibly unified uh, behind Donald Trump, even through through impeachment, even in uh, many of the things he's done that they've privately grumbled about. They've really been a unified wall. Um, we are seeing faint cracks in that wall of support. And my guess is that if the public reelect numbers tend to go in the direction they're going, um, those cracks will turn into real cracks as opposed to faint cracks. Um, the first place we saw these cracks was with the governors. Um, you know, Trump at one point tried to say that he was in charge of the country and that what, got, what he said governors had to do. Well, that's not true. It's not even constitutional. Um, and when we looked at the governors and how they were, whether they were following the Trump model or not, what we found is that of the Republican governors, about a third of them were kind of echoing Trump. Another third were giving a little lip service to Trump, but basically running their own ideas in terms of their states. And another third were simply saying, no, we're not opening it. The science isn't there yet. We're not going to, we're not doing that. So, so that, that was the first crack is um, among the governors. Um, the second one. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I'll just continue. Oh, please. Yeah. No, this, this, the second one is that their house members, moderate Republican house members are really nervous they see themselves losing their seats. A lot of Republican House members who were moderates lost in 2018. A lot of those uh, House members see them losing their seats. Among the, among the Republicans in the Senate, there's an odd business going on. First of all, as you know, not the whole Senate is up. But the Senate Campaign Committee actually put out a memo suggesting to their Senate candidates and their Senate incumbents that when asked about the virus, the response should focus not on defending Trump, but on China. Now, that was a real insight as to what the professionals seeing in this Senate Republican races, which is there's a, suddenly a lot of vulnerable Republican senators and, and the Senate could flip. Obviously, in response to this memo, the White House got very angry. The authors of the memo said, oh, no, 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 that's not what it means. But it was one of those things that gave you a little bit of an insight into where people's heads were. And finally, there's a group that has been always never Trumpers. They were they were uh, allies of the Bush family and allies of, of Governor John Kasich. Um, so they were never Trump supporters, but they have actually formed a group called the Lincoln Project. 
and they're running ads and there's an ad called morning in america m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g um which it takes takes its uh, inspiration from the morning in america ad that made ronald reagan was so famous in the reagan campaign and uh it's a pretty devastating indictment of trump coming from republicans so if you look at the governors you look at the house and the senate and then you look at the Republican operatives who are raising money and putting out these ads, you see a little bit of a, as I said in the piece, ink crack in the Republican support for the president. Elaine, who in particular is is Trump at risk of losing here? I mean, last time around, he had a strong showing with seniors, with older voters. I'm curious how they're feeling about him right now during this pandemic, which has hit their demographic very hard. And also, um, how is he doing among working class women, a, a group that he was able to capture last time against Hillary Clinton? Well, there that's that you you hit the two groups on the head. I mean, those are the two important groups. We are seeing a definite softening among voters age 65 and up. Uh, for Trump, and they have been some of his most loyal followers. So there's definitely some softening there. And of course, if you think about it against the backdrop of the pandemic, um, voter people 65 and up are also the most vulnerable people in the population. Um, so we see softening there. And then even before the uh, pandemic hit, we were seeing definite softening among white uh, working class women. Uh, and in fact, if you look at all white women together, and of course, the reason we do this is that black women are so uh, highly supportive of the Democrats, it skews the numbers. So if you just look at white women, there is a big, a big, big gender gap, maybe the biggest gender gap we have ever seen in American politics, with men being more or less split between Trump and, and Biden or Trump and a Democrat and women overwhelmingly, um, sometimes as high as 63 percent of women are against Trump. So what has happened is the Democratic co uh, the college white women have always been pretty solidly democratic. Um, it looks like there are working class white women, non-college white women moving into the democratic uh, field. So of that approval rating, let's call it 44%. That's I think 538's composite number. Um, how much of the 44% is the Trump base? Is, it, is the whole thing uh, the Trump base or uh, is there some portion? I mean, is it only up, you know, 30% out of the 44 or what's your best guess about that? <laughs> you know, that it's, it's interesting, Rick, you should ask that because of course, nobody years, knows. <laughs> I know for years, this has been a, a, a topic of speculation. I would guess that the Trump base is somewhere around 35 to 40%. Okay. And that, that, and I think the real Trump base, the people who would go to his rallies and who will write me nasty emails after you air this program. And, me too. You know, yeah, you too, right? Yeah, <laughs> that Trump base is probably more like 20 to 25%. Um, I think that, I mean, one of the things that some people think we are seeing right now is that in 2016, um, there was a lot of anti-Hillary voting. People didn't like Hillary. They, there was Clinton fatigue. They didn't think that she should be running. Um, 
there was a lot of anti-Hillary voting. Biden doesn't elicit the same kind of uh, dislike that Hillary did. And so there's a sense that some people who voted for um, uh, Trump in 2016 will actually be uh, more open to voting for a Democrat in 2020. So you know the paranoia among Democrats about Joe Biden that that, uh, let's call it a 6% uh, margin he seems to have over Trump right now, that Trump has not really come out attacking Joe Biden full board. Uh, Joe Biden prone to gaffes that that 6% lead could evaporate in, uh, you know, days or weeks. Um, do, do you think, what do you, what's your, what, what, what do you think is most likely to happen? Do you think Biden can capitalize on that and make it bigger? Or do you share the concern that some Democrats have, or at least the view that uh, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a very fragile 6%? I think that the Democrats who say that are ignoring one thing that we really know about politics in America and frankly in other democracies, which is elections are always about incumbents, all right? They're not about the challenger. Now, sometimes incumbents can try to make the election about the challenger, but in this kind of situation where the incumbent, first of all, is so omnipresent on on the stage and so omnipresent in the minds of the voters and where the, uh, incumbent has been in the middle of a huge national catastrophe, it's hard to imagine that the Republicans are going to be able to make this election about Joe Biden. It's one thing to do it when there's no incumbent. It's one thing to do it when it's Trump versus Hillary and neither one of them is in office. It's quite another thing to try to Um, make it about your opponent when you're the incumbent. And I I think that that is what the Democrats who are nervous uh, forget. This this is about Trump. This will be about Trump. You know, Elaine, you've seen the ads coming from the Trump camp already um, targeting Biden when it comes to his relationship with China. I mean, Trump really ran on this anti-China sentiment. It's been present throughout his presidency. And now with the virus seemingly coming from China, you know, he's digging in in his heels even more. Do you think that that's a successful, I'm going to call it political strategy, because it seems like this anti-China sentiment is is just that, it's a strategy. Do you think it's enough to turn things around for him and give him a real fighting chance in November? No, I don't. I think it's, it's, it's like a lot of the, you know, let me step back for a minute. President Trump has had has a problem taking advice, right? And he, he doesn't take advice from his own aides about what he should be doing, how he should be positioning himself, etc. Um, the China strategy strikes me as a strategy guaranteed to rev up his base and turn out his base. But it is not a strategy, I think, that will in fact get sort of moderate voters to come over to him. Um, and I, I want to go back for a minute to 2018. In 2018, Trump was Trump's strategists, you know, standard Republican strategists, many of whom I know, they're they're good guys, they're smart political operatives, said to him, make this election about the economy. The economy's great. That's your that's your you know that's your strong suit. Trump, what did he do? He made the election about immigration and the wall. 
Okay, he turned that election into immigration and consequently lost a lot of moderate Republicans, particularly women, in uh, a lot of these swing seats, allowing the Democrats to take over the Congress. Um, his tendency is to turn down um, expert advice and always play to his base. Well, the problem with always playing to his base is that there is no evidence that his base is sufficient to win an election without having included in the base sort of a, what I call a normal Republican vote and a vote against somebody else. So I, I don't think the China strategy, I think the China strategy is one strategy. I don't think it's sufficient. Well, Lane, you, you, you read political atmospherics probably better than we do. What, what do you see Trump's strategy being, uh, especially, especially as we get into the home stretch in the fall? Is it going to be, uh, I mean, he can't run really on the economy at all. Um, uh, is it going to be his uh, excellent, uh, unprecedented, beautiful handling of the coronavirus crisis? Or do you think he'll just retreat to immigration because that's safe ground for him or what? I think he'll do two things. I think we already see him doing day after day, saying things that are palpably untrue about the coronavirus. And the big one, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, was when he appeared in the Rose Garden with that huge sign behind him saying America is, you know, winning at testing, testing more than anybody else. And of course, yes, we are testing in numbers more than anybody else, but that's because we're a really big country and per capita, we are not testing more than anybody else. So it's a you know little sleight of hand. He is incredibly defensive about his handling of the coronavirus. I expect that this will be make it into ads. And, and look, let's say, face it, he does it every single day. He is trying to promote an alternative story, an alternative narrative about his handling of the crisis. So I think he'll continue to do that, try to convince Americans that that he's he's handled it correctly. And I think he will as we were talking a minute ago, I think he will continue to try to mobilize his base. So he will try to stir up anti-China um, resentments, he will try to bring immigration back in here and say, look, I saved us from hordes of diseased immigrants coming across the borders. I mean, he'll do that kind of thing. But his fatal flaw as a political um, thinker is that he has always played only to his base. When push comes to shove, he just plays to his base. And with approval ratings below 50% and a crisis going on and weakness in key demographic groups and key states, um, I think he has to expand his base and he's never shown an inclination to do so, which is different, by the way, than every other president we have known in the modern era. He always played only to his base. When push comes to shove, he just plays to his base. And with approval ratings below 50% and a crisis going on and weakness in key demographic groups and key states, um, I think he has to expand his base. And he's never shown an inclination to do so, which is different, by the way, than every other president we have known in the modern era.
<laughs> Elaine, what are, what are the odds that the general election doesn't even happen in November? I mean, I know Trump is talking <laughs> about, you know, likening himself to being a president during wartime in this pandemic. Might he make the argument, look, during this time of, of, of super uncertainty, we can't have uh, an election right now and I just need to remain president. How likely is that? Extremely unlikely. Um, first of all, the Constitution says you must have electors chosen um, at a certain time in the fall. So if there's a constitutional issue and the date of the election is actually set by a law in the that is calls for the first Tuesday in November. This law was passed in 1845. We have had ele presidential elections in the middle of a civil war, first world war. Second World War, we have always held presidential elections. The only way to change that would be to have the Democratic House of Representatives uh, change the law, and you would still then have a constitutional mandate to dealing with the selection of electors. So this is not going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen. Now, the second thing to bear in mind is that um, one of the most interesting things happening um, in America is that with that before this pandemic, we were moving to a situation where most people did not vote at the polling place. In fact, what most people did is they vote, what a lot of people did was they voted from home. So let me give you one interesting statistic. In 2018, only 62% of Americans voted in person at a polling place. Isn't that interesting? That means that 38%, right, were voting either absentee at an or in a an, in all paper ballot state, or they were voting um, at an early voting place. So even before the pandemic, the trend was for people to vote not at their polling places. And of course, what we've seen in recent months is that trend is is picking up in a big way. Uh, California now gives counties the option to have an all-mail ballot, which everybody gets an absentee ballot. You don't have to remember to request it. So um, we're going to be able to have an election in November without putting people at risk. And um, I can say absolutely categorically, we will have an election. So Joe Biden is um, playing defense right now. I mean, it's probably the prudent thing to do. He's abiding by the, uh, you know, stay home procedures in Delaware. Uh, he's going to have to come out at some point in some form. But as a general uh, principle, do you think can, he can win by playing defense or does he have to uh, go on the attack more or outline his own agenda more? And how would he do that when you can't really get close to voters, which is kind of a Biden strength? Well, you know, there's an old saying among political operatives, which is never get in the way when your opponent is committing suicide. So that's kind of where people are right now. As long as President Trump seems to stumble around and have press conferences suggesting that we drink Clorox to prevent the uh, virus, um, you know, Biden doesn't have to do anything. Now, what he has been doing, which I think they're learning, everybody's learning as they go along, he's been doing lots and lots of local press in states. And in fact, they even do what's called Google travel days, where they fill up the day on 
Zoom as or whatever as we are, um, talking to local reporters, local TV, local radio, local interest groups, and and leaders in the community. Um, so there is a campaign going on. I think that they hope, as do all Americans, that maybe by August things will loosen up a little bit and they can start campaigning again. And I think that that if if that happens, I think you'll see Biden out there. You'll see him with voters, et cetera. But you know, you gotta you gotta think about this for a minute. It's not just Biden. It's Trump that's affected. It's all the Senate candidates. Everybody. Um, the old-fashioned stand on a rope line and shake hands close by and hug, um, you know, 500 voters after a rally or after a town hall. I can't see any candidates doing that. That is a very high-risk strategy. I can see them maybe going back to doing speeches and rallies and things like that, but the touchy-feely politics that um, we have known and politicians have become you know, familiar with. Um, I can't see that happening in this election cycle in any event. I just want to go back where we started. I've been thinking about this a bit more. Uh, so you talk about this um, kind of these small fissures in the GOP. I want, and I wanted, I'm just thinking about how big those might get. There are not many Republicans who will outright criticize President Trump right now. I can, I mean, it's single digits right. really. Uh, mm -hmm. It's Mitt Romney right. and maybe you can name one or two others. Do you think more Republicans, let's say in Congress running for re-election, will actually openly criticize Trump because they think it is safe and perhaps even advisable to do so? Or is that a uh, bridge too far? It depends on how unpopular he gets, right? It depends on how unpopular he is in some of these states. And I don't think they will outright criticize Trump because they still want to keep the Trump voters um, that, that hardcore, they still want to keep them in their camp. But I think it's what's more likely is that they will simply distance themselves from Trump. And the distancing will come in their rhetoric. They'll, they'll have policies that are non-Trumpian. They will highlight the fact that they work well with Democrats. Um, I think that they'll, they'll, they'll distance themselves. You know, in 2018, Trump was not invited to um, campaign with many Republican members of Congress. Uh, he was he was pretty scarce on the campaign trail. They didn't the the vulnerable members of Congress did not want him out there. And I think if he if the trends continue as they are, what you'll see is the Senate candidates, especially these vulnerable Senate candidates, and there's four at least, um, and possibly some of these moderate House members will say. Uh, please, Mr. President, don't come campaign with us. Just real quickly, uh, what is a red alert for Trump in terms of approval rating or re-election rate? Would it be some approval rating below 40%? Would it be 8% Joe Biden lead, 10% Joe Biden lead? What becomes insurmountable to your mind? Um, I think that his approval ratings have put him in trouble for re-election for the last three and a half years. I mean, this is this is a president who's it's pretty unprecedented. He has never gotten to 50 percent. He cannot get out of the low to mid 40s. So I think that's already put him in trouble. If he has at times dipped to 38 percent, I think if he starts dipping below 40 percent, the trouble is even more serious than it is now. Um, and I think the Biden lead, again, you know, we have to 
realize that this is an electoral college thing and uh, electoral college decision, and it's state by state. So California alone, given how democratic it is, for instance, California had a four million vote um, advantage for Hillary, and she won nationally by three million votes. So you can see how California distorts in a funny way, you know, the national the national picture. So I think what we have to do is we have to look at swing states. Um, and there, I think, to get Biden up up over the hump, he probably needs to be five to ten points ahead of of um, of uh, Donald Trump. And then I think it will probably follow in some of these important states. All right, we're going to leave it there. Elaine K. Mark, uh, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Primary Politics. Great conversation, and thanks for stopping by our humble electionomics podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for having having me, and be safe, everyone. All right, you too. Before you go, we just want to make sure folks uh, follow us. I'm at Alexis TV News, Rick. I'm at Rick J. Newman and Elaine, if you want to put your Twitter out there so you can get love notes from our uh, from our many viewers <laughs> and listeners, feel free. It's just at Elaine K. Mark. That's all. And it, it gets to me. <laughs> That's all she wrote. All right, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.